it's New Year's, and I was trying to think of, a, you know, a good passage to start off the New Year's with, and, uh, and there's a bunch of them. There's all kinds of great passages throughout the Bible, and I probably went with the least likely passage. I don't think there's any other pastors across the United States, maybe even the world, that is preaching on this particular passage or book uh, for the New Year's. But for some reason, well, actually, you know, we've been studying this book in, in Sunday school with the high schoolers, and uh, I kind of, I think I took it for granted for years and, and kind of glossed over it and didn't really, it wasn't my, one of my favorite books. But I find myself, as I was a studying for the teens on Sunday morning in the Sunday school there, I just found myself drawn to it. And I was like, this is an amazing book. We need to talk about this. And it just so happened it's New Year's. So it, if you don't see a real tight connection with New Year's, that's okay. Because it just felt like God was, you know, he was challenging me with this uh, to look in a little deeper. And, and I felt like I was in over my head, honestly, as I started jumping into it. And uh, I was just kind of like, this is like pastoral suicide, sometimes jumping into a book that you just feel like you don't totally grasp, and you got to like tell everybody about it on a Sunday morning. So I was struggling all week long, because there's so many like beautiful things in it, and there's so many bunny trails that you can take, and I was just like, Lord, how can I communicate my love for the book of Leviticus? Amen? Amen? Amen. <laughs> Did you see it? Did anybody see that one coming? I talked to a few of you, so that doesn't count. But how many of you saw the book of Leviticus coming this morning? One? Kenzie did? Really? Wow. Caden probably thought the Song of Solomon. I don't know. That's a risky one, too. No, we're going to be studying the, the book of Leviticus this morning. So open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 9. And we're going to be reading through an entire chapter of Leviticus. Chapter 9. Is everybody getting there? And please turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 9, because there's no way you're going to track with this if you just listen. You need to see the words also, and, uh, and that will definitely help a whole lot. All right, let me get there also. I'm a little behind you guys. Leviticus chapter 9. All right, I'm there. Everybody ready to track? All right, let's jump in. On the eighth day... Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year, without, a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought with Moses uh, what Moses commanded in, in front of the tent of meeting. And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. And bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. All right, let's everybody come up for a breath real quick. Whew, you feel like you're drowning yet? Yeah, no, okay, we'll keep going then. Verse 12. 
Then he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him, piece by piece, and the head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. And then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the, of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's son handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver. They put the fat pieces on the breast, and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breast and the right thigh of Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Anybody feel like falling on your faces yet? It's a crazy passage, isn't it? Did, I don't know. Maybe you're better than me. I, I have to read stuff like this 15 or 16 times before I even start to really even comprehend what's going on. And uh, so anyways, I'm, I'm looking at this passage, I'm praying, I'm like, God, what, what, what are we going to do with this? How are we going to talk about, you know, this passage in Leviticus? Because I know it's, it's awesome and it's amazing and my heart is being drawn into your truth and the wisdom that's being shown in this passage. But I mean, let's, let's be honest, it, it's hard. What do you do with this? Uh, a lot of people for New Year's resolutions, you know, especially for Christians, you know, like, we want to read the Bible in a whole year. Did anybody say they wanted to read the Bible this year as part of your New Year's resolution? Some people don't bother with them at all. A couple of you want to do this. Well, this is a New Year's resolution slayer, the book of Leviticus. I mean, you get through the book of Genesis. It's going great. You got the story of creation and fall, you know, and the flood, all those fun stories that really engage your attention. And then you get in the book of Exodus, and it's, you know, all these miracles and Moses and fire and clouds and uh, armies being swamped, you know, in, in the sea. It's just got amazing stories. And then when you get to the book of Leviticus, it all comes all seemingly to a screeching halt. It's just like, seriously, Leviticus is a, it has slayed more New Year's resolution than Cinnabon has. It has. It's this just like stops. You have such good intention, intentions of reading through the Bible, and all of a sudden you get to this one, and it's just like, er, you find you, you're stopping reading because it's like, I don't understand. It's hard to stay engaged with it. It's kind of like reading an old instruction manual. You know, we know how guys are with instruction manuals anyways. We don't like reading them in the first place, right, until we get in trouble. And then we might go and, and read it. But I'll actually read an instruction manual. Actually, we've got some friends from uh, Sparta, Wisconsin that are visiting, and they were like, hey, you don't know how to do one of those screen captures on your phone. They have Apple, and, they're, or, and you know, they're trying to get me to figure out how to do it. And so I Googled it and found the instructions. I'm like, oh, you just hold these two buttons, and it takes a screen capture. I just discovered that this week. And that kind of instruction, I was like, it applied immediately to my uh, circumstances, and I was excited to read that instruction manual. But otherwise, it's, you know, imagine reading an outdated, if I, I asked every one of you right now to read an instruction manual for Windows 98, how many of you would be excited? Steve, put your hand down. You probably would, though. 
That's awful. That would be like torture. Those instruction manuals are, are lame enough, but that it's outdated and has like no seeming significance to how we live our lives today. You're like, what's the point? And that's how people approach the book of Leviticus as a book that is outdated, that it's irrelevant to the New Testament Christian. And I think there's a lot of danger that comes with that line of thinking. But that's honestly a line of thinking that keeps us away, I think, from gleaning the wisdom that is found within these pages. Uh, also, if you're a little bit squeamish, as you might have experienced a little bit reading just this one chapter that we did right now, if you're a little squeamish, if you're a, a what is it, a hemophobic, so I said that right, you don't like blood at all, the book of Leviticus is not for you. It's all about blood. I mean, it's talking about blood through the whole entire thing. I'm not real squeamish around blood, but I can't say that I like blood a lot. One of my uh, roommates from back in Wisconsin, he, uh, he loved hunting, and he had a little tiny Ford Festiva, and it was like the smallest car I think Ford has ever made. It got like 300 miles to the gallon, and uh, he came home one day, and he had the hatchback was open. He had four deer that barely fit inside the thing. They didn't fit inside the thing because two of the heads were dragging on our dirt driveway all the way up. And next thing I know, he's got these things in our kitchen, on our counter, and he's cutting them up. And that just kind of like the whole rest of the year, I was still finding like little blood parts, you know, that, that things all around the kitchen. He tried to clean up, it just didn't work. Brendan Brooks, you know who I'm talking about, don't you guys? Yep. So uh, anyways, those are our friends from Wisconsin. Everybody wave to the roast back there. So yeah, a little backwards wave. And uh, I'm not squeamish, but that kind of weirded me out. And so the same thing, when you're looking through this passage, you know, this passage in Leviticus, you're just like, that's weird. You know, it's, it's an outdated manual that doesn't necessarily apply to the New Testament Christians. Uh, you know, as one reason, it's, it's bloody and it's weird. You know, we're, we're removed uh, geographically and culturally to even be able to understand what's really going on. There's all these reasons that compound on top of each other that I think rob us of the opportunity to see what God is trying to do in the book of Leviticus. Uh, always come back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. A lot of you know that. It says, all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, proof, correction, training righteousness, so that the man of God and woman will be thoroughly equipped for every good work, right? And so we look and like, this is part of scripture. This is part of us being equipped. It's finding how God is working and moving, even in the book of Leviticus. I say even in, I'll say especially in the book of Leviticus. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. I like this one. It says, now these things, and it's referring to Israel's experiences in the Exodus and then afterwards, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written. Why were they written down? Why was Leviticus written down? It says, for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Has there ever become a time where Leviticus is irrelevant to us? And this passage right here says, even for the people who are at the end of ages, this is written for their instruction. Some, of, some people think we are at the end of days. We may be. If we are, this is applicable for us to read and draw instruction for us. Not only that, Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever has been written earlier in times was written for instruction, that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. Leading up to this point, I don't think there's been many times I've read through the book of Leviticus and come away with hope. Have, have you? I don't know. Maybe somebody else has, but I, I've just kind of like come away sleepy. I come away, I'm trying to think of all the confused. I come away all other different kind of emotions, but I never come away, generally come away with hope. 
And so the challenge is, what, what is in there? What's packed within these Old Testament passages that's going to produce hope? And that's what I want to kind of talk with you guys a little bit about this morning. What is that hope? What is the hope in Leviticus? If you look in Leviticus chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, I think it starts kind of expressing what that hope is. It says, And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Verse 6 says, And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do. This is, he commanded you to do all this. That the glory of the Lord may appear to you. He just dropped a bomb on them. So that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. This is craziness. This is, I mean, for us, we're like, we, you know, we talk about the glory of the Lord somewhat lightly. Somewhat lightly and, and you know, we don't, we don't I think, take, we, we don't take it in its fullness of what that meant. This was not a safe thing to say to the people of Israel. This was a very dangerous thing to say to the people of Israel. The glory of the Lord may appear to you. That is the goal, that the glory of the Lord would appear to you. But this is, this is a potentially terrifying scenario if the glory of the Lord actually comes before the congregation of Israel. I'll tell you a little illustration back from when I was a single man in Arizona working after high school. I was interning, uh, doing kind of a little un- informal apprenticeship with an electrician. And uh, he was kind of teaching to me the ropes. And, and uh, one day, we were working at a hotel. Normally, we worked on residential stuff. We didn't do a whole lot of commercial electrical like Matt Lawson does. We do all the, like, the low-voltage stuff that you can lick your finger and touch it, and it really won't affect you that bad. But when you're working in the commercial side of things, it's a whole nother ball game. And so we were, we were working at this hotel. And uh, the, what we were trying to do was going from a, an electrical panel that was inside the hotel, inside of a, a room, and it had a cinder block wall, and we were trying to run a conduit out the back of the panel and uh, outside so we could run some more air conditioning units and provide more power. The problem was, was that we couldn't turn off the electricity to the hotel with people there while we were working on this. And I found out later that's poor, poor apparently... Like the cardinal rule is you have to turn off the electricity to work with it. Didn't know that yet. And I don't know why my boss didn't tell me this. Seems like it would be important to know. Anyways, so he told me, he was like, John, I got to go somewhere and you need to drill a hole through this panel that has live electricity. And the panel's like huge. And to give you an idea, the fuses inside of things are like dinosaur pills. They're like these fuses. You know our little sissy fuses we have? You know, there are tiny little things like that, and you have these cute little tweezers that pull them out. These things are gargantuan, massive things. And, and, uh, and there's, like, there's not just one. There's like three of these things lined up, and they're all huge. And any one of them could kill me, and there's three of them. And he's like, and you gotta, you got to drill a hole through this panel live. And I'm, I'm just like, you got to be crazy. And, and uh, no wonder he left. He's just kind of like, I, I can't be responsible for this young man's death. He's out of here. He leaves. And so I pulled, a, I pulled a little metal tab off, and uh, we got this drill that has, you know, it's a big Milwaukee drill, and it has this, like, three-foot extension on it, and then it has, like, a 45-degree angle on the end with another one-foot uh, bit on it to drill through. And, and so the panel's, like, here, and I'm, like, way over here, you know, trying to get through this thing. And uh, my buddy's on the outside of this room, and there's a little window, 
and, uh, and I'm going through, and everything's going great. And I, I think finally survived this whole scenario. And the next thing I know, the whole thing just lights up. It blows up, and I'll never forget the, the light that shone in that room. I thought my day was done. My time was over, and it just, it all happened. It boomed, it banged, and uh, I thought I was dead. I saw the light, and it was done. And I just stand in there, and uh, my buddy outside, he was like, John? And, uh, and it took me a minute. I was like, I'm, I'm okay. That's all right. He said that he was, this is in Arizona where it's bright outside. And he said he never saw anything that light, you know, show, show from inside the building coming outside, you know, and that was, that was electricity and that was a power. I experienced the power and glory of electricity. It appeared to me and it was almost my undoing. It was almost my undoing. That's because my nature and its nature are totally incombat- incompatible. If I'm going to approach it and not die, I must do something. Uh, I, I must live my life in the utmost regard and respect of this said electricity. I can't just approach it any way that I want. There are certain rules that I must follow. And in the same exact way, when God says the glory of the Lord is going to appear to you, this isn't like, oh, the glory of the Lord. This is like, this is the maker of electricity that is appearing before them in his glory. The scripture says that no man can see God and live. The glory of the Lord is going to appear before them. This isn't, this isn't just a, hey, you know, Jesus is coming to town, you know, like the Nicodemus song or the, some of those songs, Jesus is coming to town. Uh, you know, it's, it's so much more than that. This is like saying, hey, guys, God's coming and you're all going to die. Imagine that. That would take a little bit of the excitement out of it, wouldn't it? You know, God's glory is going to come. And you know that our natures don't mesh very well. How are we going to handle that? Would that affect how you come in here on a Sunday morning? If you knew that God's power, if it came on you unexpectedly and you were not prepared, it would kill you. Would you approach this morning a little bit differently? I thought about it beforehand. I thought about hanging like little curtains down over the doors. So that when you come in, you actually have to lean over and you have to bow. Coming in the presence of God. And this presence of God is not a building. It's not a sanctuary. That's not what I'm saying. But I wanted a physical demonstration. I just thought it would be mean for some people that, you know, I know I'm getting, I'm 40. It's a little harder for me to bend over all the way too. And I didn't want to do that to everyone. But it, it's, a, it's a teachable moment to show that when we enter the presence of God, our behavior has to be altered. It has to be changed for our nature not to be consumed by a holy and righteous God. And God is saying in this passage, he's like, I'm going to show you something amazing, amazing and terrible all at the same time. And it's dangerous. It's so dangerous. The bookends of the passage that we just read are, are expressing the warnings. In, um, let's see, Leviticus 8, God is telling Aaron and his sons, he says, perform what the Lord has charged so that you will not die. He's giving a big warning there. Do this carefully or else you will die. And then at the, right after this passage in uh, chapter 10, verses 1 and 3, Aaron's sons actually died. Two of his sons died because they did not approach carefully. It says because they used unauthorized fire. Now, you look at it and you're like, why did, why did God kill them because they used unauthorized fire? God's glory is dangerous. Well, yeah, we get all that. But why, why for unauthorized fire? They were trying to worship them. They were trying, it seems like they were trying to do things right. And it's a little bit confusing. Like, why did these, and it's a, that could be a sermon in itself, 
But I want to kind of get to a point is that we can mistake, we can mistake what God is doing here by, by giving these very specific instructions on how not to be destroyed by God's glory. When it says un- they were killed because of unauthorized fire, um, I was thinking about how many of you have Keurig machines? A couple of you have Keurig. I know this is, you're like, where are we going with this? Keurig machines. You know those coffee makers? We, just, we bought a new one for the church about a year ago. And the new Keurig machine has, uh, it actually has a little scanner on it now. The old ones didn't, but the new ones have little scanners. And you know those little K-cups, those little instant coffee things that you put in the Keurig machine? They have little barcode thingies on top or not. It has some little symbol that has to read, so it has to be authorized, and it won't take any, anybody else's coffee. You have to, their authorized version is authorized because they want a monopoly on the market. I hate it. I'm sorry, Keurig. I hope this isn't recorded and going anywhere, but I don't like Keurig anymore because they won't let me buy my cheap stuff and put it in their nice machine. They won't, you know, and I look at it and that's, you know, it's like that's just messed up. And when we, when we see God had authorized, unauthorized fire, we're just kind of like, it, I mean, it almost seems like God wants a corner on the God market, you know, and wants, you know, everybody's attention. And he, yeah, yes, he does, and he's deserving of it. But, you know, it's not this kind of, Keurig isn't deserving of it. You know, the, and we, we look at God, and it's like, God, you know, is, is, are these just kind of lame rules and conditions that he's placing? Is he like a spoiled, stuck-up kid in the backseat of your cards that's like, don't you dare cross that line or I'm going to kill you. You know what you, you probably said this to your brother and sister growing up. You know, is, is that what God is doing in this whole authorized, unauthorized thing? Is he just spoiled? Is he just mad? Is he just trying to protect his territory? And I was like, no, he's, it's kind of like the authorized, unauthorized versions of the solar eclipse glasses. That kind of made sense to me. Because you remember when the solar eclipse came around this past year? And I remember everybody's going and trying to get glasses, and, and Amazon put out this big thing about don't buy unauthorized versions because people are trying to rip you off, and if you use them, it might not affect you right away, but you will go blind, and it will damage your eyes, your vision. And God's telling them the same thing. He's like, this is unauthorized, not because God's just trying to be, I, I hate talking about God in these light terms. He's not, he's not being a, a jerk or stuck up or mean or rude. He's saying you have to use the authorized version because the unauthorized ones won't work. When God said there's only one way to, to be righteous and holy and to be accepted and have a right relationship and approach him, he's saying that because it is the only way. There is no other way. He's saying that because that's the only option there is. God is like the sun, and we are like humans approaching the sun. If our na- his nature is righteous and holy and powerful in our nature, if we try to approach him with anything human and man-made, we will be consumed. We can't do it. And God is, he's telling us that because he loves us. He's telling us, he's, when it says that the glory of the Lord may appear to you, he wants to appear to them without destroying them. That seems like a crucial part of any relationship, doesn't it? Approach someone without destroying them. Uh, X-Men, uh, Rogue, some of you teenagers might remember that. One of the X-Men superpowers, if they touched anyone, they would die. That'd put a damper on relationship, wouldn't it? Yeah, and she had to wear these gloves all the time. It's kind of like that, except way cooler than, than that. Uh, God actually wants to reveal himself to them. He wants to reveal himself to them. I only have 12 minutes for serious. I should turn the page to page two.
So this whole thing about God revealing his glory to the Israelites, it, it made me think back to the book of Exodus where God was going to reveal his glory to Moses. Do you all remember that part of the story? And I think there's some similarities that help us see what's, what God is doing and what, what's going on here. I went back and I looked at this passage and Moses made a request of God and God granted that request. And so Moses got especially bold, bolder than maybe anyone else in the history of mankind. He says, I want to see your glory. And God said to Moses, he said, uh, let's see if I can find it here. He says, I will make, uh, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But God could not just simply show Moses his glory because he would die. And so God, God told Moses, and I love the wording on this. He said to Moses, he said, stand on the rock. And then when I pass, he wouldn't, couldn't see God's face because he would definitely be destroyed. Just like he just got to see a, a glimpse of a part of God's glory. And it says, when I pass by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock to protect you. Do you ever remember the song, Christ the Solid What? rock. And I love, I don't know why I didn't catch that before, but I was reading it and I was just kind of like, oh, that's why he didn't die is because he was standing, I think God was teaching us something there. He was standing on the rock and he was within the protection of the crevice of the rock so that he could see the glory of God in an amazing way. And that changed Moses. It changed his countenance. It said that when he came down from the mountain, his, his face visibly shone so much so that when he talked to people, he had to put a veil down in front of his face. Honestly, I think that's the kind of life change that God wants to do in our lives, so much so that people, you know, not that they can't look at us, you know, but that, that they look at us and they see that our lives have been changed. Our countenance is different. How we live life is different. Everything is different about us. It changed Moses' life. It went back a little bit earlier in Exodus, and I think Moses had tasted, had those glimpses of the glory of God and altered the way he lived life. And one of those stories that really stood out to me was, was when Moses... Uh, God was ticked off at the Israelites because they had the golden calf. You remember that whole story, right? And God was ticked off at them and so ticked off. He was like, Moses, you, you guys go on ahead in the promised land. He was going to destroy them, but he decided he relented from that. He, and God told Moses, you guys go on in the promised land, and I'm going to send an angel to go before you into the promised land. If I was Moses, I would have been like, yeah, the promised land, going to go to the promised land, I'm going to get all the promises, you know, all those good things, all those blessings that we associate with God. Moses' response blew me away. He said, don't make me leave this mountain without you. I am not going to the promised land unless you are there. How many of us would make that statement to God? God said, Moses, you go on. The reason God didn't want to go is he said, I might just, y'all going to tick me off again. I'm going to have to destroy you. His, his glory would destroy them if he went. He said, I got I to pull back for your own safety. And Moses is like, I am not going. I don't care. Those blessings that are in the promised land are meaningless. They are nothing without your presence. Nothing. It changed his life, his outlook. How many of us can say the same thing? Marriage is nothing unless God is there. That new job is nothing unless God is there. 
We can say that about every aspect of our lives. But the only way we will say that is if we have, if we see God's glory, and like Moses, like it was expressed to Moses, to see God's goodness for what it is. I think the most terrifying thing that could possibly happen to us, I don't know if this is why we die, but to see God's goodness and at the same time realize that we are separated from God's goodness because of our sin. To have the highest form of excitement and then realize at the very same time that we are never going to have it. I think that would be enough to overwhelm anyone. I saw a funny video on uh, YouTube a while back, and it was of a, uh, a narcoleptic dachshund. Narcolepsy? That's where you can't sleep, right? Yeah. It was a narcoleptic dachshund. This dog would get so excited when he saw like people or a master or something, and he was on like this long hallway, and he'd get all excited, and he'd start running and running and running and running, and then all of a sudden he'd get so excited, he'd get slower and start going off to the side, and he fell over because he was just overwhelmed with, <laughs> with excitement. And I think that's what God's goodness is for us. It's like if we saw it, we'd just be like overwhelmed. We couldn't contain it. We, it, would, it would physically kill us. And then realizing that that goodness, it, we are separated from it, we, can't, we, can't, we couldn't handle that. We couldn't handle being separated from God's glory. And I think that's why coming back to our passage here, I think I'm at the end of page three, page, or page three here, I think that's why in this passage, God gave them a way for their natures, God's nature and our nature that is separated by sin. He made a way for them to come together. And he said, he gave them uh, the whole list, and I'm going to have to skip over some. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little disconnected because I talked way more than I should have on that first section here. God is going to reveal his, his glory to the people. How can they see the greatest good of God and not be consumed? And God gave them four offerings, four sacrifices that would, that would protect them. Again, not because it was God saying, you have to, I want two, two sugars in my coffee today, and you only give me one, and if you don't, you know, it's not that kind of thing. He's telling them because this is the only way that they will not be consumed by his goodness. And he gave them four offerings. He gave them the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. Scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And we see that true in all these offerings that God is telling them how not to be consumed. The sin offering is this, a sacrifice of repentance. The, birth, the burnt offering is, uh, appeases the righteous anger of God. The grain offering, it recognizes that all of everything that we have is a blessing from God, and we are dependent on him for, for sustaining our life. And then there's the peace offering. The cool thing, and this is where it ties back into the New Testament, and this is, a, this is where it just totally boggles my mind, all the different connectedness and stuff. But when Jesus died, he, he brought in the new covenant that, took, that fulfilled the old. There's no need for all of these, these blood sacrifices anymore. But God's sacrifice on the cross is never connect, directly connected with only one of the Old Testament sacrifices. Not a single one of the Old Testament sacrifices are continued. And so we know that God, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross fulfilled every single one of the, of the sacrifices in Leviticus. You aren't amazed yet. The amazing thing is that we, 
there's so much, it unpacks what Jesus did. This is the key. Leviticus is the key to understanding what Jesus did on the cross. Did you know there are over 30 different sacrifices in the book of Leviticus? And Jesus, in his single death on the cross, fulfilled every single one of them. That's amazing. We, so often when we approach Jesus, we're like, you know, I love Jesus because he died for my sins. That was sacrifice number one in this list. That was the sin offering. Sacrifice number two in the list was the sacrifice of burnt offering. The burnt offering recognized that not only did Jesus die for our sins, but his, his sacrifice appeased God's righteous judgment on our sins. So we no, no longer carry that condemnation from God. The grain offering, that's something that Jesus fulfilled too. Jesus, it's a, it shows our dependency on God. This is one of the greatest gifts that God gave us. In the Garden of Eden, he gave Adam and Eve everything. And their sin was that they traded dependency on God for independence. As Americans, we think that the greatest thing that we can have is independence. And that's true when it comes to man. Because no man, we, should, you know, we, we shouldn't be dependent on any one person or woman. But sometimes we forget that, that that's okay in that setting, but that makes us forget that we were created to be dependent on a righteous and holy and good God. Jesus paid the penalty, the sacrifice, so that we could regain dependence on God. We lament all the time about how, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could be back in the Garden of Eden and have everything taken care of and provided for us? Wouldn't that be amazing? And that's what Jesus died to do is to help us to help us regain dependence on God who can provide for our needs far better than we ever can. That's what God provided for us. And then finally, and these, out of these just four, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the last one is called a peace offering, but I've also seen it called a fellowship offering. And this is one of the coolest ones. It's almost like a culmination. This was the only sacrifice and offering that the person bringing the sacrifice got to actually participate in. Why do you think that is true? It's called the fellowship offering. It's like communion Sunday for us, where we're eating together, we're hanging out. It's like, um, it's like um, Pastor says, till we eat again, you know, when we're having our potlucks and stuff. You know, it's like, it's, this is a, a sacrifice that shows that the goal is in seeing God's glory is that we are united and we have fellowship with God again. This is the culmination of all these other sacrifices of what God is trying to accomplish and what God is trying to do in our lives. And so to understand Jesus and what he did on the cross, we have to look back in Leviticus and see what it is that he accomplished, what he did in, in all these, uh, fulfilling all these sacrifices and offerings. To understand Jesus, we must understand Leviticus. We must understand Leviticus. And then in John 1.14, I, I love this. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. God showed his glory to Moses, and his face shone, his life was changed. God showed his glory to the Israelites. You just see, keep seeing this progression of God expanding who he's showing his glory to. And so Moses stood on the rock, the Israelites stood under the blood of the sacrifices, and now God is showing his glory to the whole world, and we stand under the precious blood of the Lamb, Christ the solid rock, the Lamb without blemish who was slain for us, so that the whole world can see his glory and not be consumed. I think that's an amazing thing. 
Amen? Isn't that awesome? Isn't that cool? Maybe it's just me again, getting excited about Scripture. It's 12 o'clock. I'm not officially over yet. So, think about all the animals that it took. I, I thought this was cool, too. The peace offering, the one that was the only one that uh, they actually got to participate and eat part of. Did you know that to do the peace offering, to eat meat, every piece of meat that the Israelites ever ate was a piece, part of a peace offering? If they wanted meat, they were doing a peace offering. That blew me away when I read that. And it showed that constant fellowship with God. But I was just thinking of how many animals had to die, how much blood had to be shed in order to, to be right with God. The animals were never enough. The animals were never enough. And this is where I think it's hard for us to wrap our mind around because it's animals and it's blood sacrifices and it's a cultural change. Let's transition it to something a little more modern that might help you understand. They say freedom isn't free, right? Freedom is not free. And we celebrate, you know, Memorial Day. We celebrate men and women who have died for our freedom. I was, one time I went and I looked, and I was trying to figure out what the number is for the number of men and women who, in all the wars, just the United States War, American wars, have died for our freedom. And it's an astounding, it's in the millions. I don't remember what that exact number is. But it highlighted, I was like, wow. No matter how many men and women die for our freedom here in the States, we will always need more men and women to die, won't we? There never will be that one person in our country who can die that can finally give us peace. There will always have to be more. And this is an amazing thing about Jesus' sacrifice is that the blood of the bulls and the goats and everything else, it was never going to be enough. But what Jesus has done on the cross is enough, more than enough. It has satisfied all the demands, righteous requirements of the law and has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ so that we can see God's glory and not die and taste of his goodness. It's an amazing privilege that we have as Christians. My challenge in New Year's resolution for you, because it's first Sunday of the year, we have to, I think we all sign something as pastors when we first start that we do a sermon on New Year's resolutions. Don't just read through the Bible as your New Year's resolution. That does not honor God. You're like, oh no, he's doing that. Let me, the goal of the Bible is not to get to the end of the Bible. It's not to read through the Bible. That does not honor God. What honors God is praying, God, show us your glory on each and every single one of these pages of your word. The goal is not the end. The goal is finding God's glory and his goodness on the pages that he has given. And if there's something sad, it would be get, to get to the end and be done. We've totally lost it if that is our goal, just to read through it and be finished like we accomplished the goal. That's not the goal. My challenge for you is to, to go and find those books of the Bible that you've skipped over before, the minor prophets, the, you know, you can go through a whole list of them that aren't as fun to see. And spend time, and do not leave that book until you see the glory of God revealed. And what it teaches is about God, what it teaches is about Jesus, what it teaches about our, us and our relationship with God. Don't leave that book until you see the glory of God revealed. Be like Moses.
I ain't going anywhere if you're not there. Is that a good New Year's resolution? I ain't going anywhere. 